Hi, everybody. I'm Danny Marshall, an alcoholic. <clears throat> I want to thank my friend Pej for asking me to do this. He asked me, I said yes, and then I found out it was a 90-minute meeting. So uh, the answer may not have been yes. Had I known, um, if you're new, everyone at Big Sur and anybody else who's new, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I, so I'm all over the place. Uh, sorry. Um, I'm all over the place because I'm on this text chain with John and Lisa and Larry, uh, who are all giving Larry great accolades for his talk. And I'm also on a text chain with Mean John and Larry. Uh, and Mean John's not giving him the accolades that Nice John and Lisa are. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm caught up in the whole thing. So if you're new and you're going, oh, great, what is this chubby Jew going to talk about for an hour uh, if he's tag busy texting? Uh, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome. This is not, uh, it's not a wellness society. Uh, we're a bunch of people trying not to have a cocktail one day at a time. Uh, happy birthday, AJ. I got to see you take the cake this morning at eight and then again tonight. And I love come all the way in, sit all the way down. Like that was such, I heard it this morning. And it was like, it resonated with me. And I'd like to thank Larry for a great talk and for being, and for calling me every day for 14 months. Like I really want him to get new phone numbers, but I'll keep taking the phone call. Uh, and, uh, and I'll talk more about Larry. I want to thank, I got to tell you, I'm really angry uh, at a couple of things that are going on in my life that are out of my control. And I hate being powerless. Uh, and some stuff happened today that just kind of set me off. So uh, I don't know if this is a swearing meeting or not, but I think tonight it will be, whether it is or isn't. Uh, and uh, and so I'm really angry and I'm really grateful and I'm really lucky. And, uh, and I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing pants uh, and uh, I don't like to wear pants. Uh, and it used to be the mullet wear, like it was business on top and party on the bottom. And then my friend, John Graff told me he was wearing pants and I love John and John has saved my life on more than one occasion. And I said, why are you wearing pants? And he said, because I respect Alcoholics Anonymous, don't you? So I had a few choice words for him and now I have pants and shoes on uh, because I got a life beyond my wildest dreams as a result of what you've introduced me to in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I have a sobriety date, it's April 24th, 1990. I have a home group uh, where my family of Lisa and John and John G and Daisy and Bree and my new family Meg all attend, uh, which is just, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle. It, it's so funny. I, and yes, I'm scattered because I'm, because I'm medicated on this life-saving medication that takes me a little bit out of the moment every once in a while. And, uh, and because I'm, you know, because uh, I get to be scattered. I'm not a, uh, you didn't pay me a lot to speak here tonight. So you get what you get. I, uh, I, uh, um, and I lost my train of thought. So I, uh, so anyway, my family and Alcoholics Anonymous. During this Zoom, if you're new, I want to welcome you. Uh, if you're new, I want to promise you that for the next 45 minutes or an hour or so, you're safe. 
Like we need nothing from you here. You don't have to do Jack in Alcoholics Anonymous if you don't want. The heat is off, take a deep breath. Hopefully at some point on your journey here, you'll hear something that resonates with you where you have that moment where you go, oh, maybe I do belong. Like I had over 30 years ago that kept me coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I have a friend who says, don't keep coming back, stay. Just stay. Like just stay until you hear the music and the magic and the gift that keeps on giving here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, <clears throat> I, uh, and if you're getting sober during the Zoom experience, how freaking brilliant. You know, I hear people talk about they, they miss being in person and they don't like the Zoom thing. And yeah, it's really one dimensional and I miss the laughter and I miss the, the hugs and I miss the coffee. And a month ago, I spoke at a meeting in Tehran. And, uh, and last Sunday night, uh, Larry and I went to, to my sponsor's meeting in Jerusalem at 11.15 at night to hear this crazy Orthodox Jew smoke a pipe, eat oatmeal, play Ray Charles, and, and sing a hymn in Hebrew at an AA meeting that like, I can't wait to go back to again tonight. And, uh, and Lisa and John and Larry were at a meeting in Ireland yesterday. And during the week, I was at a meeting in Scotland. And to, to shrink me down to the right size of being this tiny little pebble in this global sober community is so safe and so protective and so delicious that, uh, you know, the way AA pivoted so beautifully and so quickly to, to surround us globally in, in the safety and comfort of Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't want to miss for the world. And, uh, and I don't know about in Laguna, but here in the Valley, there's a, there's a pandemic going on. Uh, and, uh, and it's, you know, it's disrupted my life. You know, I'm, I drank, right? I, I, I was always uncomfortable and I was always different. And I always believed that you guys got this, like uh, this manual on how to do life that I missed out on. And that started at my earliest memory was six or seven years old. I remember being eight and hanging out with my little league team and always wanting to be at their family's houses because they like did it better than we did. And I had, I come from a loving place. I come from a loving mom and dad and I had a little brother and then a baby sister came along and, and there was no abuse, you know, there was, I, I grew up, I, you know, I'm not going to say it was Warden June Cleaver because when the chief of police Brought my, brought my dad home for drunk driving. It was not really, that didn't happen to, to Ward Cleaver, but, uh, but there was, it was a really normal upbringing and I had a really good life. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, my dad died almost 40 years ago, 42 years ago. Uh, and today would have been his 88th birthday, right? And, uh, and I miss him. I miss him and I think about him a lot. And I got to think of him more recently when, when Larry, who I just love and adore and sponsored 25 years ago, and now I get to work with, get the gift of working with again, uh, about three or four months into this pandemic, his, uh, his dad was starting to decline a little bit in Philadelphia. 
So Larry and his dog hopped in a car here in LA and drove cross country in the middle of a pandemic so Larry could show up and be of service to his dad and ultimately hold his hand and say goodbye to him, right? And if that's not proof of the power of Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I don't know what is. And, and here's the beautiful part of it. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, uh, the, what you do after a family member or someone you're mourning passes away, you do a prayer ceremony surrounded by 10 other people. It's called a minion. And you try to do it twice a day for the first 30 days. And there was nowhere in Philly for Larry to pray. So he wanted to go to Jerusalem. My sponsor lives in Jerusalem. So I called my sponsor, gave my sponsor Larry's number, gave Larry my sponsor's number. They connected. He hooked Larry up with a prayer group at six o'clock in the morning. And Larry got to honor his dad all through the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And when I... When I'm in the middle of all that, I just think it's, you know, Larry calls, I roll my eyes. Like, am I going to answer the phone? Or am I not going to answer the phone? Do I have to pick up the phone? Can I call him back late? You know, like it's a crapshoot whether I'm going to be there and be of service or whether I'm going to pay attention to my own little stuff. But uh, that day I picked up the phone and that day I made a phone call and someone else made a phone call. And Larry's family was taken care of as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I, I drank, right? I drank. I was uncomfortable as a kid. I uh, was incredibly insecure. I believed that you guys like knew way more than I did. I, uh, my, my sponsor likes to say he waited until he was nine to drink, although he could have used a drink on the way to kindergarten. And I never really thought about it like that, but yeah, me too. Me too. And, uh, and I waited until my bar mitzvah to drink. I, uh, I drank the, f <laughs> my grandfather was a rabbi in Hollywood and he invited 1800 of his congregants to come watch his grandson, the prodigal grandson being bar mitzvah. I got drunk in the morning. I threw up on the pulpit. I embarrassed him. I embarrassed the congregation. I embarrassed all my family. And then we had a party at my house and, uh, and I got drunk and I threw up on the guests uh, and I embarrassed my mom and my dad and myself. And here's the only thing I thought the next morning. The only thing was, oh my God, I cannot wait to do this again. That sense of ease and comfort that I felt as a result of putting alcohol in my system made me at one with the rest of you. And I couldn't wait to replicate that. And I chased that replication for such a long time in so many different ways. I talk a lot about drugs because I did a lot of drugs and I really like doing drugs. And if the talk about drugs offends anybody, I'm sorry. Uh, but in Bill's, our founder's story, he talks about drinking, not being able to stop, going to a doctor and the doctor gave him a sedative. And the next day found Bill taking both gin and sedative. And in Dr. Bob's story, he talks about taking pills in the morning to calm his shaking so he could go to work. And, uh, and then drink afterward. So I thought if drugs were good enough for our founders, they were good enough for me. And giddy up, I did copious amounts for a really long time. I used to take anything that said, do not operate heavy machinery. Like I didn't know that I was stealing antibiotics for a decade. I never got high, never got sick. It worked really well. Uh, but I would take, since I grew up in the Valley, there was a lot of crushing up of mini cross whites. 
Um, we used to crush up and snort mini cross whites and periodically a quaalude or a dozen. And uh, But I really loved cocaine. I really loved cocaine. And uh, I stole a lot of money and hurt a lot of people behind cocaine for a really long time. And what happened, so I drank that way, the way I drank my first day, I drank that way until my last day. Like there was, I had no governor, there was no delayed gratification. I put alcohol in my system and all bets were off until I passed out. And then I would wake up in the morning and start all over again. Uh, and uh, I ended up moving to San Francisco, chasing her. She didn't want me there. Uh, she dumped me right after I got there. Uh, I joined a fraternity and a democratic socialist organization because I really wasn't, didn't know who I was or where I fit in. Uh, I ended up in a lot of bars late at night with uh, not a lot of women around doing, uh, my favorite was a bar called the End Up where we would do poppers till four o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and there were a lot, of, a lot of people in leather that I didn't quite understand, but that's just where I ended up and how I ended up. And I uh, ended up coming back to LA um, in, in August of 19, August of 1979, I was away for the day and I came back to find out that my little brother had died in a mountain climbing accident. And three weeks later, I was taking a walk with my dad at LA Valley College and he dropped dead of a heart attack. And it sucked, right? It just freaking sucked. And it, it changed my life and it shaped my life and it destroyed my life. And it had zero to do with my alcoholism. But see, I'm an opportunist. And if I can get away with my behavior behind the tragic experiences that took place in my life, I'm going to take every opportunity to do that. And I hid behind that and I drank behind that and I used behind that and I got away with it for a really long time because once you confronted me, my response is, well, look what I've been through. Look what I've been through. Wouldn't you do the same thing? You know, and when I was writing bad checks, I love to write bad checks. I, I had all good intentions when I wrote the check that it was going to clear and then once I got the alcohol from my corner lick, there were, when I lived in San Francisco, we lived in the Sunset District. And right down the street from us, there were three liquor stores on the corner, on three corners, three different liquor stores. And I had to time my writing of checks to each and every one so that the one on the Southwest corner would bounce right after I had just written one to the Northwest corner. Uh, and I had to, that, that planning, of bad, bad paper circulating in that neighborhood was like a full-time job. And, uh, and I navigated it pretty well. Uh, and then when I went back to make my amends uh, and try to pay them all back, none of them remembered me and none of them were the same owners. Uh, so I got to take that money and do something else with it. Uh, but anyway, so I drank, right? I drank and I lost my dad and my baby brother and, uh, and it, You know, it's funny, I think about it. My daughter is 19. She's the age I was when my dad died. And uh, I've had some health challenges the last year, uh, which have given me the opportunity in a completely uh, narcissistic, self-obsessed uh, way 
to face my mortality on a daily basis. Uh, and I think about what it would be like for my kid to not have a dad. Uh, and I get scared, you know, and it breaks my heart. And because uh, I know what happened to me when my dad died, and I don't want that to happen to my kid. And um, And how cool that those are the thoughts that cross my mind rather than, you know, let me just get loaded and forget about the whole deal. Because that's the, that's the answer that I used to use. So anyway, I'm 19 years old, I lose my dad and I lose my brother and I'm drinking around the clock and I'm snorting copious amounts of cocaine. And I may periodically, I date by the hour, right? And I'm not like a normal dating guy, I date by the hour. I like to call an escort service. I like to have her come to the house and, and uh, because I have no self-esteem and I have, you know, I'm, I'm so insecure. And what happens is I had a grandfather who was a Russian immigrant and he came to this country with nothing, zero. He was 19 years old when he landed on Ellis Island and he learned a language and he went to school and he built a life for his kids and his grandkids. that was better than the one that he had. And I was too loaded to go to the hospital the night he had a heart attack. I was almost too loaded to go to the funeral. But when they were handing out the estate checks, I was first in line because that's who I am. And I got the check and I put it in the bank and I called an escort service and she came and she brought a free base pipe and she stayed for six months. And I tell this story always for two reasons. One, I never wanna forget where I go. And two, my wife hates when I tell this story. So I tell it sometimes just to piss her off. Uh, so this escort, she came, she brought a free base pipe. She stayed for six months. And I don't know about the rest of you men in this room, but my first thought when I ingest free-based cocaine is long-term Neanderthal sexual relations. Unfortunately, the, the last thing that's humanly possible is for me to be an active participant. So if you can picture the short, fat, mulleted Jew waddling around his apartment, chasing a sex worker for six months, getting absolutely nowhere, I hadn't heard the term pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I thought they were normal dating rituals, right? I thought it was. And what happened for me is my grandpa who spent that his entire life building a life for his kids and his grandkids, I smoked it up with a hooker in six months. So if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't know what you're bringing to us. I don't know what that soul sickness, that cancer, that, that, that secret is that you're gonna take to the grave with you that's gonna separate you from the opportunity to start to live a life beyond your wildest dreams. But that's what I brought to you when I was taken to the grave. And I was not only dying of alcoholism, I was dying of shame. And I didn't know which one was gonna kill me first, but one of them were gonna take me out. And I couldn't handle the shame, so I drank more. And I couldn't handle the alcohol, so I got more ashamed. And I drove my life down and down and down. And I ended up being thrown out of that apartment by the US Marshals because the landlord wanted rent and I didn't have any. Uh, so they kindly helped me pack and put all my stuff on the front lawn. Uh, and I ended up in a little apartment in, in West Hollywood with a buddy of mine. Okay, so I have to apologize to like John and Lisa and John Graff because like they can mouth this shit. Like they know my story. They know all about me. They know inside and out and they know, 
But I, and, and I think about that often when I'm talking, like, am I supposed to change my story? Am I supposed to tell a different? And the truth is, I, I only got my story, right? I only, got, I earned my story, right? And the only thing I have to give you is my experience, my strength, and my hope. If I start giving you my opinion, we are all screwed. If you hear me start to say, I know what you ought to do, run away, run away. All of, you know, it talks about it in the doctor's opinion and talks about it so beautifully where Bill's talking to Dr. Silkworth and says, uh, I would like the privilege of uh, speaking to some other patients that I may be helpful to, uh, which is why when I talk, I say it's an honor and a privilege. Uh, I would like the privilege of talking to someone. And I love what Dr. Silkworth says is, with some misgiving, we let him do it. Meaning we didn't all think it was a good idea. We weren't sure who this crazy guy, you know, crazy stockbroker talking to some of our other patients uh, was a good idea, but we acquiesced and we let him do it. And that was the beginning of what we're doing now. Like I'm just a drunk telling you how I don't drink. If you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous and you think, oh, the guy in the suit, he must be important because that's what I thought when I got here. I'm just a Jew with a book. That's really all I am and it's really all I got. Uh, and if you're new, my prayer for you is that you stick around long enough till. So there was this beautiful experience. Uh, uh, two weeks ago on a Saturday night, we had a one year celebration for our friend Daisy right? Daisy turned a year. And it was so beautiful. And it was so sweet. And a bunch of us showed up and told some stories about Daisy. And because a, a group of us uh, watched Daisy come in and go from unintelligible to on fire, like unintelligible to on fire. And if you're new, you don't know what it's like to see someone else's lights go on. It's freaking life affirming and life changing. And what happened at Daisy's celebration, it was at midnight one night, uh, two weeks ago, Saturday. And here was the beautiful part, right? There was a woman at the meeting, her name is Karen. She had 38 days at the time. And I think about it from the perspective of a guy who's been doing this for a little while, like Lisa and like John and like Graf. And, and you know, we've been doing this a little while. So I think about it from my perspective about how exciting it is to see someone's lights go on. And then at the end of the meeting, this woman, Karen, with 38 days at the time, talked about how hugely influential and how safe Daisy makes her feel in the room. And I thought, that's Alcoholics Anonymous, right? That's the deal. It has zero to do with me. There's a newcomer making another newcomer feel safe and protected in AA. So if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, my prayer for you is you can stick around until someone lights your fire and makes you feel safe and protected. So what happened is I ended up living in this little apartment in Toluca Lake and I was doubled over in a whole bunch of pain and I uh, ended up going to Cedar sinai emergency room where they gave me a shot of Demerol and they said, whatever you do, don't drink. And I said, wrong. And I went home and I drank a fifth of vodka out of my bed because that's how I drank. It wasn't social. My, my pattern was if I made it to work, 
I would drink two airplane bottles of vodka to, after work to get me home. And then I would start drinking. And I would drink airplane, I would drink thrifty blue brand vodka out of the bottle laying in my bed until I passed out. I'd wake up the next morning, I'd brush my tongue, I'd throw up the vodka from the night before, I'd crawl back into bed, drink whatever was left, turn on a Highway to Heaven rerun, and then see where my day was going. Like I used all my sick days by January 3rd, I was well into vacation time, I was like the model employee, I, uh, and I ended up getting that shot of Demerol, and here's where I start to understand how the disease of alcoholism manifests itself in me. I believe I play by a different set of rules than anybody else on the planet. And whatever you citizens have to adhere to, I'm a little different, I'm a little special, I can get away with shit that you can't get away with. And, uh, and I knew I was going to a gastroenterologist and I believed to my innermost self that he would not find alcohol in my system. I believed it. And he drew blood and he came back and he said, do you drink? And I said, yes, sir, I have a glass of wine tonight, like anybody else. And he said, uh, it's noon, you have a 0.25 blood alcohol level. You also have a distended liver and we'd like to check you into the hospital to detox your liver. And as, I was, as they were checking me into the hospital to detox my liver, I had an atrial fibrillation of my heart because my detox from alcohol was too much for my heart to handle. I ended up in coronary care for three days and then they shuffled me off to the chemical dependency unit. So if you're new, when I tell you I got to Alcoholics Anonymous dying of alcoholism, it's not because it sound good, sounds good here in the, in the square. It's because I was dying of alcoholism. And they were detoxing me with a drug called Ativan, which was really, really good. Uh, just took the edge off just enough. And uh, they thought it would be fun to watch the Jew play volleyball on Ativan. So I broke my ankle in two places, uh, checked into this chemical dependency unit, and they said, we're going to a place called the log cabin. And I thought, cool, pancakes. This is like a civilized deal. I can do AA. At the time, I was the same height that I am now, which is about, I don't know, 6'6". Six, six. Just kidding. Like 5'9", five 5'10", five a little hunched over. But I had the San Fernando Valley crystal meth speed drummer's mullet. I had a big bushy beard. I weighed 245 pounds. I put on the, my best outfit in the hospital, which was a purple and gold striped shirt and gold MC Hammer harem pants. And they wheeled me down Beverly Boulevard and up Robertson Avenue at 7.30 in the morning, carried me up the three steps to the cabin. How you guys knew I was a newcomer, I have no idea. I don't. To this day, I, like, I thought that you were all talking behind my back and you knew uh, I was a newcomer. And you said, gave me a cup of coffee. And you said, can you come back? And I said, leave me alone. Because I didn't want anything that you guys had to offer. And I'll never forget, I, I hate the term journaling, right? I, I judge it and I hate it. And uh, journaling, I'm journaling. So I've never journaled. But when I was in the hospital, I journaled. And uh, I never forget, I went to the log cabin in the morning and I came home and I wrote in this thing, um, I just met a whole bunch of people a whole lot sicker than I am. And I just met a whole bunch of people a whole lot more willing to get well than I am. And that was my introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And we did 30 days in a chemical dependence unit. It was beautiful and it was lovely and la, 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 la. Everything was a miracle and it was exciting, blah, blah, blah. And uh, on the 30th day, we had the ceremony where they passed a coin around and they said, Danny, we love you. And Danny, you're amazing. And oh, let's hug and blah, blah, blah. And I put the coin in my pocket and I went to Lee's Liquors and I bought two fifths of vodka and I went home and I started drinking talks about me in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the difference between the heavy drinker and the alcoholic is the heavy drinker given sufficient reason to stop, stops. I had atrial fibrillation, I had a distended liver, I was told I was going to drink, I'm going to die. And I cannot replace the cycle of spree and remorse with the cycle of commitment and surrender left to my own devices, no matter what. And it's not because I'm a bad guy and it's not because uh, I, I won't do it. I cannot stop drinking. And what happened for me April 23rd, 1990, is I was standing on the front porch of my house with a half-drunk bottle of vodka in an overnight bag on my crutches, waiting for my mom and my baby sister to take me back to the chemical dependency unit. And that look of pain and fear and sadness and remorse and disgust and hatred that I saw in their eyes in that moment, I haven't had to see in anyone's eyes in over 30 years. So when Pej says, can you come and get, give a talk? You bet your ass I can. Because I got two actions, right? I'm walking towards a drink or away from a drink. I'm either walking towards a drink or away from a drink. And the more actions, you know, Bill, Bob talks about it at the end of his story, where he says there's four reasons he, he stays involved in AA. And one of them is uh, to repay the debt. And the other is that the more actions he takes in Alcoholics Anonymous, the greater the opportunity he ensures against the drink. And uh, so I got busy in AA and uh, hmm. so a year ago this week, I got busy in Alcoholics Anonymous, had a series of sponsors, really great people, lovely men. I was five years sober, I wasn't dating much, Maybe it was the mullet, maybe it was the harem pants, not sure. I stalked this woman at my morning meeting. She was a hairdresser. I had a mullet. I thought we'd be perfect together. I uh, went, I made a hair appointment. We had a date. We went out for, we had a date. The next day I called her 30 or 40 times to make sure she hadn't forgotten about me. The fourth day she dumped me because I was freaking insane. Uh, and we ended up getting back together. We moved in together. Right after we moved in together, uh, she said she wanted to go to Hawaii. These were her words. I want to go to Hawaii with my friend. Here's what I heard. I want to go to Hawaii and have sex with everyone in Hawaii except you. That's what I heard because I'm, I'm a little different. So I went to my sponsor and I said, what do I do? And he said, here's what you do. You, you march home. You tell her to make a choice. It's either you or Hawaii. And if she chooses Hawaii, you pack her bags and you throw them out in the street. You didn't get sober to be treated like that. And I thought, huh, it's a little harsh, but I'm going to be the good AA soldier. I'm going to be that guy. Uh, and I marched home and thank God she was at work. Thank God she was at work. I opened the big book to page 69, and it says now about sex. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. Counsel with others is often helpful, but we do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct, which to me is one of the fulcrums uh, of change in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if I don't want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct, it means that 
if I start telling you what you should do, I take away the dignity of you having your own experience. I play God and none of this can work. So we do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. So I read that. I, uh, I, I got rid of him as a sponsor. I married her. We've been married 24 years. I called a man named Scott Redman that I had heard speak in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, I need help. And he said, honey, I can help you. And when he said, honey, I can help you, my shoulders dropped and my chest relaxed. And the ice around my heart started to melt just enough for the music of Alcoholics Anonymous to start to penetrate. And he introduced me to the inventory process, just like I introduced it to Larry today. Resentment, fear, and sexual misconduct, the three areas of my life where alcoholism presents itself the most, where if I treat it like a real piece of business in Alcoholics Anonymous, I have an opportunity to live and overcome a lifestyle that I had been ground and settled in for a really long time. Uh, resentment's the number one offender. It has the power to actually kill. These resentments must be mastered, but how? I couldn't wish them away any more than we could alcohol. Uh, I use this example with great regularity. Uh, back up just a second. So Scott's my sponsor. He's the most loving man I've ever met in my life. He held me and, and I cried. He'd hold my hand and say, honey, you're okay. He never tried... He never, when I'd call him with a problem, his response is, oh, honey, that sounds really hard. He didn't try to fix it. He didn't try to make it better. He didn't tell me what, what I needed to do. He just created a safe place for me to recover from alcoholism. And if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, my prayer is, that you find a safe place where you can recover from alcoholism because that's what I bring you, right? That's what I bring you is just my experience and a place to lay your head. And uh, so I, uh, he introduced me to the inventory process as it's outlined in the book, Resentment for Sexual Misconduct. I use this example with regularity because it happens a lot. Let's say I'm resentful at my wife. The cause is she said good morning the wrong way. Like she said, good morning, but I know what she meant. Like I saw the look out of the corner of her eye and I know what she was thinking when she said it. And it really wasn't a good thing. So I'm resentful of my wife because she said, good morning. What does it affect in me? It affects my self-esteem. I'm married beneath me. It affects my pocketbook. I've wasted way too much money on this woman. It affects my ambition. Uh, it makes me want to be less of a, of a, uh, of an engaged husband. It affects my personal relations because I will gossip about her to anyone that will listen. And it affects my sexual relations because I start withholding all of this beauty from her. Uh, and right, all she said was good morning. But here's the beautiful part about the resentment part of the inventory. It says we, resentments must be mastered, but how? We couldn't wish them away any more than we could alcohol. So I've got this blueprint and then it says, we disregard the other person entirely, the resentment's mine. What are my defects of character that if God were to remove the resentment would be lifted? I'm punitive, I'm grandiose, I'm retaliatory, I'm withholding, I've got low self-esteem, I'm a people pleaser, I've got fear of confrontation, I, I like to get big and in her face and I loom and when I don't loom, I silent scorn. I like silent scorn a lot. Uh, I'm filled with shame that this is my behavior. 
Uh, I've got false pride and I'm sober longer than she is. So I'm, I do AA better than she does and I'm closer to God than she is. So I'm filled with spiritual pride. Uh, and what did she do? She said, good morning. But it talks about me in chapter five where it says the wrongdoings of others fancied or real, which means that it didn't have to happen. I just had to think it happened. Uh, and thank God you tell you don't make me feel bad or sick or crazy as a result of that. Thank God that's my alcoholism and you've given me a treatment for that. And then he introduced me to the fear part of the inventory and the sexual part of the inventory with with, which for me is the springboard into a development with relationship with the power greater than myself to solve my problems, right? I, and then it became a dad and, and uh, a couple of things that, so a year ago this week, uh, and I tell this story because Graf loves when I tell this story. So uh, I was not feeling so well uh, and uh, I was getting like some rapid heartbeat and a little tight chest and, and I didn't know what to do. And I was freaking out a little bit, but it was a Sunday night and like, I, you know, what am I going to do? So I got on my knees and I said, dear God, should I go to the hospital or will I be okay going to sleep? And the voice that came into my head was my friend Vincent, my sober brother Vincent, this gay Cuban guy. Uh, and his voice loud and clear in my head said, I got you, boo. I got you, boo. So I heard, I got you, boo, which meant I'm okay and I can go to sleep and I'm covered by my higher power. And I woke up the next morning and uh, I was still not feeling well. So I called my doctor and he said, get the fuck to the hospital. What are you thinking? So I, uh, what I heard was, take your time take a shower, shave, because you don't want to look scraggly in the hospital, put on a nice outfit, pack an overnight bag, have a cup of coffee, and then, you know, saunter over to the emergency room where they put a needle in my chest. I was having sustained ventricular tachycardia. They rushed me into coronary care. They performed a surgical procedure where they implanted a, a battery pack in my chest uh, I got out of the procedure. Uh, I stopped breathing. I went into a coma for two days, two and a half days, at which point my wife and my sister and my life-saving friend Lisa stood vigil around the clock and John and John Graff and Larry like made sure that I was so safe and protected in that hospital. So safe and protected. And, uh, and uh, when I was out of the coma, uh, Larry came to visit and he said, I don't know how you did that. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, did you ask all these people to call me? And, you know, he had a couple months at the time. I said, what? He said, you know, John and Lisa and John Graff and all these people are calling me and checking in on me. And you must have called them, right? And I said, I was in a coma. I was not calling anybody. That's Alcoholics Anonymous, Larry. And you saw him just go, boom. Thanks, Hawk. Uh, you just saw his, the lights go on and the body change and everything was like, 
I, he'd never experienced anything like that in his life. And, uh, and I started the road to recovery and, uh, and I'm now a year later and I'm taking medication that makes me uncomfortable and it takes me out of the moment. And, uh, I'll, when I had a couple of months out of the hospital, they wanted to put me on this protocol of medication, which was like a chemotherapy drug an oral chemotherapy that I take on Saturday nights. And I was really scared to take it. And I was really scared of the side effects. And I was really scared of what it was going to do and how it was going to affect me. So I called my sponsor du jour and uh, said, what do I do? And he said, well, I'd like you to meditate. And I said, I need a new sponsor. Like this is not helpful information. And, uh, and but here's what you taught me is that uh, my job is to follow the suggestion. It's not to question. I called him for help. He told me, he gave me help. My job is to take the action. So I started meditating every Saturday night to make friends with the medication, to breathe in, to thank God for creating a medication that may save my life, to breathe in the medication working and breathe out everything that's blocking it from working. And I thought nothing of it, nothing of it. I do it every Saturday night. I talk about it to my friends. It's blah, blah, blah. Last week, I get a call from a really good friend whose dad is pretty sick in a hospital in Philly. He's not a sober guy. Uh, and my, my, my friend called and said, can you teach my dad the meditation? And she put him on the phone and I walked him through my meditation, my medication meditation. Uh, and what came to me is that if I would have said no, I would have missed the whole thing. I would have missed the opportunity to make my friend feel a little better and know that her dad was taken care of, right? And no to me is the knee-jerk reaction. Yes is still the hard thing for me to say. So I will tell this story and then I will shut up because I always tell this story because you know there's that line in chapter five that says, we stood at the turning point, we asked his protection and care with complete abandon, right? Which means, Pop, it's all yours. When my daughter was six or seven, uh, we had a goldfish named Edie the Goldfish. She had been with us Ruby's whole life. And, uh, and I came home from work and she was belly up and I went into Ruby and I said, Pumpkin, I got some sad news. Evie the goldfish is dead. And she said, oh, Pop, that's sad. And I said, yeah, it's really sad. I said, what should we do? She says, you know, Pop, we should take her down to the ocean and release her back to her family. And I thought, you know, uh, that's so sweet, but we live in the valley and I want to be a good dad, but not a great dad. Uh, and I said, uh, can you come up with something else, Pumpkin? And she said, uh, thought about it. And she said, yeah, Pop, we can flush Edie down the toilet and eventually she'll end up in the ocean. And I'm like, I love my kid. This is a kid who, by the way, is now 19 years old. She was a nationally ranked debater uh, who, when I came home from work a couple of years ago, she called me an entitled old white man. Uh, and I said to her, define entitled. And she said, uh, Here's entitled pop. I don't care how evolved and how engaged you are. You will never know what it's like to be a person of color being pulled over by a cop late at night. You will never know what that feels like. 
So I asked her to sponsor me. It's been going quite well for a really long time. Uh, she's far closer to God than I am. And she's, she's a great kid who's behaving like a 19-year-old recently, and I'm scared by it. Right? She's doing what normal 19-year-olds do. And I'm putting my experiences of 19 onto her experience of 19. So she's not having a cocktail. She's turning tricks and shooting dope downtown. Right? That's where I go. I don't go to her behaving like in that. So I get scared. So anyway, uh, I plop the goldfish in the tank. My wife grabs Ruby. I, I throw the fish in the tank. I say, pumpkin, is there anything you want to say before we say goodbye? And she said, yeah. She said, dear God, thank you for allowing Edie to be with our family this long. Now, please gently take her home to hers. So 11 years ago, my sponsor, Scott's dying of cancer in the hospital. And seven years ago, my mom, six years ago, my mom's dying of heart disease in the hospital. And I don't know how to do this. I'm a runner. I am a runner. But I watch, you know, but I watched my friend Lisa take care of her mom. And I watched my friend John take care of his wife, Lisa. Thanks, Hawk. And I watched my friend John take care of his wife, Lisa. And I watched my friend John Graff be of service in ways that were unfathomable to me. And I'm holding my sponsor Scott's hand and I'm holding my mom's hand and I'm, uh, and I'm, I'm scared and I don't know what to do. And the thing that pops into my head is Ruby's prayer. Dear God, thank you for allowing Scotty to be with me this long. Now, please gently take him home. Dear God, thank you for allowing me to have a mom this long. Now, please gently take her home. And what happens for me is if I don't treat my alcoholism like a real piece of business right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I miss the whole thing. And I'm unwilling to allow alcoholism to take me out of any of that. So if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, I want to welcome you. I don't know what you're bringing to us, and I don't know what it is that you don't want to miss that you got coming down the pipe for you. But I can promise you that if you treat your alcoholism in Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't have to miss anything ever. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome home. Thanks.